So I thought I was going to get farther on the story of Jacob tonight than I, than I realized I was going to. And the reason for that is because, um, are you just really going to be blocked off there, Trez? Um, because there's an awful lot that goes into the story of Jacob that kind of has to be laid out before I get into the actual details of his life. So um, tonight I'm going to try to lay the foundation for that. I'm getting into a lot of stuff that I don't fully understand, things that I find interesting, but I'm possibly going to have a hard time giving them to you in such a way that you're going to find them interesting too. And I'll just throw that out there now because um, that way you won't be too disappointed if some of this just doesn't, doesn't quite ring. And if it doesn't, and you, you have questions, just tell me. But I think this is important because all of this leads up into, into some of what we're going to talk about next time. And um, we'll actually get to the story of Jacob a little bit all the way at the end. So the, the, I entitled the talk tonight, Practice Makes Perfect. And looking at habits, so in your words, how would you define a habit? Not a hobbit. A habit. What, like, what do you think? Something you do without thinking, or you just do it all the time. Okay, all right, without thinking. Anything else? Something that you do over time, eventually it just becomes just second nature. So I mean, it involves a lot of time. Mm, okay. Like doing the same like thing repetition. over and over. Repetition, okay. Emmy said without thinking. Are they conscious decisions or unconscious decisions? What do you think? And th there's no wrong answer. I'm just curious like what, what you all think of when you think about habits. Kind of both, but tends to be a little more unconscious. Okay. Alright. Um, I know I keep talking about categories in class um, and how do we break things down into categories because there's this, there's this, um, there's a really wide array of information that we have to process on a regular basis. And so we categorize things to dumb it down, to make sense of it, so that we don't have to think about everything all the time. And I'm doing a personality course right now, and one of the things I didn't realize before is that personalities are actually a, a um, I guess we could say biological, um, neurological. It's, it's something that God has given us to actually br help break down our world for us, to give us a, a way of perceiving what's going on around us. And um, I'll, I'll give you a definition of that. So you have somebody that's, a, uh, that's introverted naturally. An introvert means that uh, you, you tend to be more of a loner as opposed to being all out there and you know everything that's inside of you just comes out. Uh, extroverted would be the opposite of an introvert. So those things tend to be, now they can be influenced by outside, you know, things that happen to you, but those things tend to be just your personality. Some people just tend towards being outgoing and bubbly and sanguine, and some, ten, some people tend towards being quiet. That's a result of your personality. But your personality then affects how you operate or how you act when you get into a crowd of people you don't know, for example. Like some of you have come to Mountain View, and because of your personality, you make new friends quickly, you hit it off with people, and like three weeks in, this is the greatest thing you've ever done, and this is so much fun, and you're loving it. And some of you come to Mountain View, and you're more quiet, and uh, you 
It's not that you're not, it's not that you're shallow, but you don't dive into relationships as quickly. And so three months in, you're still trying to find your place here. Well, the person that, you know, came a month and a half after you did is having a blast. Does that make sense? And that's, that's your way, your individual way of, of, um, of, taking the, of interacting with the world. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Because all of you come here with the same potential for relationships, the same potential for work, the same, like, a lot of things are, this, are similar, but you process them differently based on how you operate, based on how you view the world, based on how you see what's going on around you. Personalities is just one way that we, we sort of dumb things down. Um, but habit forming is another way of our, it's another way that our bodies and our minds deal with uh, complexity. And I'll try to go through and explain some of this for you. Um, habits give us routine without making us think constantly about everything we're doing all the time. In other words, we have things that are ingrained, like we just do them, and because we just do them, we don't have to think about them, we can focus on other things while this other stuff's still getting done, like breathing, right? How many of you actually consciously took a breath since you got in this room? But you're doing it, and if you would stop, you would notice rather quickly. Now, there's, there's actually something more complex going on there with the breathing mechanism, but it's still, it's a habitual, repeated action. You don't have to think twice about it, it just happens. You just do it, which allows you to focus on what I'm doing now, hopefully. As opposed to if you had to make a conscious decision about everything you're doing, you'd be like, okay, breath, okay, Nate's talking, and I gotta sit up straight in my chair, and I'm trying not to fall over, and stay awake, and not blink too long, and not, and, and not you know, blink too little, and that sort of thing. Like, there's things that we just, there's things that we do intuitively, we just do them, because the routine of that allows us to do other things that are also important. Uh, another way of looking at it would be um, habits allow you to focus on what you perceive to be more important while things that are necessary still get done without pulling attention and brain power from priorities. Here's, a, here's another way of looking at it. This is from Science Daily. An important characteristic of a habit is that it is automatic. We don't always recognize habits in our own behavior. Studies show that about 40% of people's daily activities are performed each day in almost the same situations. Habits emerge through associative learning. And Wendy Wood uh, expounds on this idea of associative learning. I'll try to lay this out for you. We find patterns of behavior that allow us to reach goals. We repeat what works, and when actions are repeated in a stable context, we form associations between cues and responses. Now, I, I sort of underlined the three main ideas here. So we have goals, habits, allows us, habits habitual action allows us to, to reach our goals. We repeat what works, that's the habit, and uh, we do what works based on cues and responses. Now, and I'll try to, to lay that out for you a little bit here. It looks something like this. So we have our goals, or we could call them priorities. Those are the things that we're aiming toward. But underneath that, you have the actions that get you what you want. Does that make sense? In other words, you have a goal, you have an action that's, that's, uh, that's moving you toward that goal, but underneath that, you have a cue, or some, some, another word we could use is trigger, something that uh, is triggering the action that's helping you to achieve the goal. Now, that's really, really dumbing it down. It's, uh, and, and all these things are really complex, but essentially, Trying to think of how to how to um, 
how to, well, I'll get to that in, in a little bit here. So the question would be, so how do I know what my goals are? That might be one way of putting it. You could start with that. Could we have stated goals? So for you nursing students, you have a goal of getting your degree. We have stated goals. Stated goals might be something like losing weight or um, a financial goal or a career, something like that. We're like, okay, I've made a decision. I know what I want to do. Stated goals. And we could say, well, okay, that's one way of looking at things. We also have implicit goals. And uh, that another way of, of, of looking at the word implicit would be to say that these are goals that we have that exist within us, but we don't really know what they are. We don't, we don't state them. They're just, they're just natural to us, but they're not really stated and we don't really understand them. Um, implicit goals almost always take priority when threatened. So uh, one way of looking at it is you have a, a goal of you know, living to the end of today. So maybe you could say that I'm going to study for my test. But the moment a shooter walks into the room, the stated priority of passing my test tomorrow takes second place to the implicit goal of, you know, I'd actually like to be alive to take that test in the first place. That takes over and you run. Now that's, that's an extreme way of looking at it, but, but there's other things that go along with that. Um, implicit goals are so ingrained in our minds that we almost don't realize they exist. And even if we know that they exist, we have a hard time identifying them. And here's why I say that. Why do you do what you do? Like really deep down inside of you, why do you do what you do? And most of us have no idea. And if you set about, if you if you really set out to try to figure that out, you find out that it's incredibly difficult trying to figure out why I act the way that I do. Does that make sense? Like we have we have patterns, we have actions, we have things that we do, all taking us, all all moving us in a certain direction, all designed, likely without us even thinking about them to do something for us. And often we don't even realize that the process is going on and we don't even realize what those things are that we're trying to, what, what we're trying to, um, what we're trying to accomplish. Freud thought about it this way. I'll, I'll lay it out for you in the iceberg model. Um, Freud basically thought that there was three parts to our, to our human psyche. He said you have the conscious level, which is your thoughts and perceptions. He, he used the iceberg model. So you have the, the little bit here up the top, that's what you see. So those are the things that are going on in your brain that you're consciously thinking about. Thoughts, perceptions, that sort of thing. Then he said, kind of just under the surface, we have, uh, he called it the preconscious level, or uh, actually, you know the word for it, but I don't remember what it is. Um, that's stored knowledge and memory, things that you can remember and use on short notice. So, you know, Kendall knows how to make a nice butcher block table, but he's not actually thinking about that right now. There's other things that are in the forefront, and yet, if called upon to make another butcher block table, Kendall can you know, grab that information in his mind and remember how he did it and use it again. So it's things that are in our minds that we can use, but they're not actually at the forefront all the time. And then all the way down at the bottom, we have what's called the unconscious level. And all of this area up here, and it, and it literally works like an iceberg, all of this area here is driving what appears up at the top, the part that you see. But most of what's underneath, we don't understand. Um, those could be things like good and bad instinct, unwanted memories, things that we don't understand or recognize because they're too painful to face. Freud had a lot of other things that he you know, threw in there, some of them wrong. Um, things that he believed drove us. I think for Freud, he, he thought it was sexual instinct that you know, drove 
basically everything that we do, which is an incomplete idea, I think. Um, but how does this work out in our lives then? So I'm guessing if I, if I asked you, you could say that there's, there's parts, you have you now, and then you have the you that you'd like to become. In other words, you have goals, uh, things that you'd like to improve in, areas you'd like to grow in, things that you want to do, that sort of thing. So what's stopping you? So those are stated goals, right? We have stated goals, and if I made a list and said, all right, write down everything that you, could, that you need to improve in, like we probably wouldn't have enough paper for everybody, right? Because like those answers just come automatically. Well, I need to do better at this and this and this and this. In case okay, so you know those things, why don't you do it? Well, one reason is that uh, it's really hard to, to change habits, for one. Um, but willpower is a limited resource. This is what I read. Willpower is a limited resource. And when we run out of willpower, we revert to habits. I think that's true. Because you can go on a diet for you know so long, and you're just, just I'm doing this. I, I'm, I'm getting it. I, I'm never going to quit this diet. And like three hours later, finished your fifth cookie, you know, like, willpower only lasts so long, um, and, and sometimes it lasts a lot longer, and you actually can change habits, although it's, it's, it's very difficult. Our habits are who we are, but how does it affect our goals? So, or how does, how does all this affect, affect how we live? So you have, like, let's say you're quiet. I'm not picking on you if you're quiet, I'm just saying maybe you don't make friends easily, and so you say, you, you kind of set a goal, you're like, all right, I'm going to intentionally cultivate uh, closer and better friendships. It's a good goal. That's your stated goal. Now let's say that you have a, a, a subconscious goal. That would be more like an instinctive goal that um, is afraid of being hurt and vulnerable and is going to, um, and that, that goal is to feel secure and protected at all costs at all times. You see how the two goals might be competing? Because to be in a close relationship, which is your stated goal, you have to be willing to be vulnerable because good, close relationships involve a lot of vulnerability. But then you have this other goal that you don't really understand that's implicit that says, Nate, you need to be safe at all times or maybe it's, mate, uh, you don't want to feel rejected ever. And so you go into, and you, and let's maybe you enter into a relationship and it's starting to go somewhere. And there comes a time where you feel like you could really share your insides with this person and then you step back. Because your instinctive goal, your instinctive desire has risen to the surface and said, no, 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 if I say that, they might reject me and then I wouldn't feel safe anymore. Does that make sense? So you have these competing things going on within us. One is what we understand, or what we say we want to be, and the other is we have all these other things coming along, or I should say coming out from within us, that, um, that really form who we are, and that tend to take us over. Now there's a lot of ways that, that manifests itself. Paul talks about it. Um, from a sin perspective, if you have the old man and you have the new man and the two war against each other, it's something like that, except it's not necessarily sin versus righteousness. It's actually um, who we are 
fighting who we want to become. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, so we have goals, although they're quite complex. We don't understand a lot of them. Um, but we achieve these goals by finding an action that accomplishes our goal and then repeating that action every time that goal is number one priority. That, I, I realize that's awfully wordy, but, but, but maybe here's a better way of putting it. Um, we have things that we want, whether it's stated or implicit. We have things that get us what we want. Those are our actions. That makes sense? And that we do those actions over and over and over again, habit forming, to keep getting us the results we want. In other words, um, let's see, what's a better way of putting this? Well, I'm just gonna leave that for now. So I said earlier that habits are unconscious actions. You could say, how come I choose a goal and choose the actions so that get the results I want? Well, the interesting is most of the time is you don't. You are choosing. All these things are happening without you even realizing it. And it's our mind's way of coping with things that we don't like. It's our mind's way of coping with vulnerability. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of how this plays itself out. I'll give, you, I'll give you one example here. So a friend of mine works with a lot of uh, kids in the inner city. I don't think I told this story before. Just to give you an, an example of how our brains cope with things w without really our permission. Um, he had a friend, a girl, that was much younger than he was, but she struggled with multiple personality disorder. And I had a cousin. Uh, actually, this multiple personality disorder is in, is in my family. Um, so far, the only instances I know of it is uh, trauma-induced multiple personality disorder, both, both occasions from sexual abuse. Um, but my friend that, that worked in the city had, this, had a girl that he knew that, that had multiple personality disorder. And so he asked her to write him a letter describing it. And every paragraph was in a different handwriting in a different color ink. Because what happens is your mind can only take so much trauma before it, before it splits. It's the mind's way of not being overwhelmed with things. Now that's really dumbing it down. Um, and so, my, and so when, when, when this personality essentially reaches its breaking point, it splits. And then it can split again, and then it can split again, and then it can split again. To the point where I had a cousin with multiple personality disorder. She was living with another one of my aunts at the time uh, because of her difficult home situation. And my uncle came over and took her on a ride on his motorcycle. And when she got back, my aunt asked her, so which one of you went out with Uncle Roy on the motorcycle today? And she could tell her. Um, I also know of another situation, another a friend of my, my sister's that had uh, multiple personality disorder really badly. It was a really awful situation. But she actually found healing from it. And in the counselor's office, the... Um, Boy, this is, this is secondhand information. The counselor actually said, as he was working with her through some of these issues, this was after years of counseling, he, he talked to her and he, he, he said, so do you, does this personality want to join back with you again, essentially? And went through each of the personalities and 
she gave them up, essentially, and, and found healing most of the way through that. Uh, but I say that because all of these things happened without her choosing to do so. It was the brain's way of coping with what was going on. Um, why is this all important? Well, here's how our brains work. So learning, this is, this is habit forming. This is, this is how, how we form habits. So this is the human brain. This is the front, obviously, frontal cortex. Um, so when you're learning something, it's a conscious action. Your prefrontal cortex right here is the part of the brain that's responsible for a lot of your decision making. It also is responsible for um, figuring out possible consequences to possible choices. Uh, and this part of the brain does not develop until you're about 25, which explains why when I was 17 I drove 106 miles an hour through the turnpike tunnel with my two younger siblings in the vehicle next to me. Didn't occur to me once, at least not in an important way, might, might happen if I had a tire blow somewhere around that time. It's why teenagers do stupid stuff. Now you can help train that out of him, but that's essentially part of it because the prefrontal cortex has not fully developed yet, which means that when you think of doing something fun, all you can think about is, man, that'd be fun. And there's not this little check going off in the back of your head saying, yeah, but what if? So you have the pre when you're learning something, your prefrontal cortex is engaged. But the other thing that's, that's, uh, that's involved is your basal ganglia. Is that how you pronounce it, nursing students? Basal ganglia, which is right here. <coughs> It's more in the center part of your brain. And what you're doing when you're trying to figure something out is your prefrontal cortex is involved because it's trying to find your way through it and think about what might happen if you do this, or if you do this, or if you do this. Your basal ganglia is coming along and partnering with the prefrontal cortex and saying, all right, you figure out what needs to happen. I'll figure out how to, how to, um, how to pull it all together and memorize the pattern so that you don't have to think about it as deeply every time. So, right now, okay, well, so uh, maybe a, a technical definition of that is the, the, uh, the basal ganglia is the part of the brain responsible for program sequences for automatic, automatic execution of learned movement. What that means is this. Walking. How many of you think when you're walking? You don't. <coughs> Excuse me, toddlers do, babies do, but you don't, why not? It's because of your basal ganglia has figured out what all needs to happen and what all systems need to be in place <coughs> and what all the checks and balances are to keep you up. So just for example, I go like this. My big toes were involved. My feet were involved. The angle of my feet mattered. My hips swayed a little bit to the right to keep me from going over this way. Do you ever notice when you walk around the corner? You tilt your head in the right direction. That's a balance thing. But all of those things are going on without you thinking about it because your prefrontal cortex and your, basal, and your basal ganglia figured out what all was important during this motion or during this movement or during this act. Typing would be another thing. Anything that you do really without thinking about it. <coughs> they figured out a pattern and memorized the pattern down to a, down to a habit where it became a, a, an unconscious action. And from there it goes into the sensory motor loop. Sensory motor loop. 
which is essentially a, a series of brain patterns going off in your head that's involving everything that you need to know to take that next step or to type the letter Q, but it doesn't involve the prefrontal cortex anymore. Pre prefrontal cortex is out of the picture and can focus on something else because the rest of the brain is firing in an unthinking pattern helping you do whatever you needed to do. Now the interesting thing is it can get even faster than that. Um, but that's why when you have something that's a habitual action, you don't think about the consequences of it. Because that part of your brain's not, not involved. It's just like, this is what I do, and away we go. Um, that's re what's, what's also interesting about this is that, um, this is a side note, you have something that's even faster than your sensory motor loop, and that's your brain stem. Human beings, most of them, <clears throat> my wife's uncle Pablo would be an exception to this, um, are hardwired on their brainstem to recognize snake shapes. Did you know that? So when you see a snake shape, it doesn't have to be a snake, but you see the little, you know, the little wriggly thing in the corner, you move away faster than it takes for the, uh, so if you, if you were to measure the time between your eyes recognizing it, so your eyes see it, goes up into your prefrontal cortex, so, so the, it goes back through your optic nerve, up into your prefrontal cortex, and then you make the decision to move away. When you see the snake shape to the time you jump away, it's faster than it takes for all of that to happen. And what happens is, is that that shape is imprinted on your brainstem, and so it goes from your, your optic nerve straight back to your brainstem, down into your body, and moves you out of harm's way. Um, they, they know this because depending, um, I don't have all my exact details down straight of which part of the brain is what, but there's people who are blind because of a brain injury. So it's not that their eyes don't work, it's that, they're, it's that the part of the brain that, that uh, processes sight is not working. You can put a picture of a snake in front of them, and physiologically they'll react in the same way. Because their brainstem sees what's going on. <laughs> it's really, really cool, all right? Um, they've, they've done it with other pictures as well. It's not like they'll jump away, but they can read, they can read what's going on on their skin physiologically and see that this, this photo is actually affecting the person even though they have no idea what they're looking at. It's just all of that stuff is pre-programmed onto the brainstem right, right off the bat. So if you're not scared of snakes, maybe you have not yet pulled the ball. <laughs> so uh, back back to this idea of, of goals, habits, and triggers. <clears throat> we could we could think of it a little better, maybe this way. You have you have your goals, you have habits, and then you have things that trigger the habits. Now you can choose some of these things. In other words, you can say every morning at six o'clock I'm going to get up and have personal devotions for a half an hour. And if you do that often enough, you'll start waking up at six o'clock without your alarm going off. Like you can form, you can help form habits, and, and it takes anywhere from you know twenty-five to two hundred fifty days, something like that. <coughs> if you're a really slow learner, maybe two hundred fifty-six days. I think it's about the limit. Um, but why is this so important? Well, it's important because forty percent of what you did today was habitual. If you're a normal human being, that's a lot of your day day after day after day. And if those things that you're doing that are habitual aren't good, then it's really dragging you down. And so it's important. Little things matter. The, the little things that we do on a daily basis 
are really important. We develop, we develop habits around what we do regularly. We form reactions to triggers in order to meet our implicit goals. One of the ways we're looking at this is um, don't practice what you don't want to get good at. Because if you practice it long enough, you will get very good at it. And if it's a good thing, great. And if it's a, and if it's a bad thing, the more you do it, the more it becomes ingrained and the less your prefrontal cortex is involved in that decision-making process. Um, so why is that so difficult to change? So imagine, imagine with me that you're at a place you don't like in life, or there's something about where you're at right now that you don't like. Why don't you change? What's stopping you? Because we state goals, but you and I both know that you can state goals and the chances of you actually accomplishing those goals across a wide, a wide spectrum of your life are not that good. You might get some things done, but you probably won't get everything done. So why is it important to understand that? Well, because one of the reasons we find it so difficult to change is because we don't understand what's triggering our actions that's giving us the results that we're getting. Maybe that's a feels like a simple way of putting it. I'll give you an example. What do you do when you feel afraid? I can tell you the same thing you did last time. What do you do when you feel guilty? Same thing you did last time. What do you do when you feel lonely? Likely, it's the same thing you did last time. What do you do when you're hurting? Probably the same thing you did last time. Why do you do that? You don't know. Because you've been doing it for so long that you forgot what got you started doing it in the first place. That's how these things work. Um, even it, it, can, it can go all the way back to a very young age, even, not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to, but, um, I'll give you I'll give you this example. So, so anger um, has been a, a, a generational problem in my dad's family. Um, my great grandpa Zook was a was an Amish drunk in Lancaster. Um, fathered an illegitimate child. My dad has an aunt that he has no idea who she is. He just knows she exists, but the family never talked about it. And um, yeah, he just he has no idea who she is. My grandfather struggled a lot with anger. Um, he wasn't drunk, but he was a he was a, um, a very hard man. And so my dad, um, my dad decided in a lot of ways that he wasn't going to be like his dad, and that gave me a tremendous boost up. But as I was young, I struggled a lot with anger, and I thought I had beaten it mostly. Um, no, I did. I, I did really think I had. I had. I had. You know, worked through that maybe or whatever that meant at the time, and then I got married and had children, and I started struggling with anger again, and I could not figure this out. The life of me, I could not figure this out. I didn't figure it out until about two months ago. Why I struggle with anger so much, and um, it it hit me as I was going through uh, some some material for my mentor group, um, for a mentor group that I'm involved with. And it hit me that anger was my way of 
getting things back in control when life felt out of control. That's what I did. So if my kids were acting up and I felt out of control, I got angry. And then you, you, know, you bark at the kids or you do whatever and they jump back into shape. Well, mine don't because they don't have like that. But, um, but uh, that, was, that was my go-to method. And I never figured it out until just recently. That I was like, okay, that's why I get so upset. It's because I feel out of control and I hate feeling like I'm not in charge. Or not in charge, I hate feeling like I'm not in control. What happened, and, and there might be deeper layers to that, I don't know. <coughs> but one of the ways I dealt with that was by, by um, becoming okay with not being in control of everything. So if, um, if my children were acting up, it wasn't that that didn't need to be addressed. But it didn't need to be addressed <coughs> so I could be in charge again. And it made a huge difference in how I related. And, and even now, I can tell, like if, if I'm starting to get upset, it's because I'm out of control. It's because I feel like, like things are slipping through my fingers and I don't have a handle on what's going on. But all these years I struggled with it and I never figured out what was driving it. Feeling out of control was the cue. That was the trigger. Getting upset was the action. And the reason I got upset was because it got me what I wanted, which was goal, which was control. Does that make sense? So I had a goal that I didn't realize was there. I saw the action, but I didn't know why I was getting angry. I didn't know to what end I was getting angry, and I didn't know what was getting me, making me feel that need in the first place. So those three things kind of came together for me. Um, here's another way of looking at it. The way, the way some of these things form. So this is a, as you can see, a very small rock. And uh, over here is a rock that's actually pretty small, but it looks bigger um, because it's, you can see the whole road is over there to the right of the rock, yeah. But it's a cool picture anyway. And then over here you have a rather much larger rock <laughs> that may or may not affect your plans for the day if you were traveling on that road. So what's the big deal with the rocks? Well, you're walking down the road and you encounter a rock. What do you do with the rock? Well, if it's just a little, you know, baseball-sized rock like that one, you don't do anything with it. I mean, you see it's there, but you don't really attend to it because it's just a small blip on your radar. It's not much of anything. And so you go down the road again, and you keep walking, and you get to larger rocks and larger rocks and larger. Eventually, you end up with the rock here on the right, and you cannot get past it. And you have no idea how to because you've never practiced it. And so you come to a bump in the road and you make a habit of going around it. Eventually you're going to come to a bump that you can't go around. And you have no idea how to do it because you've never practiced it. We do, these, we do that in our lives all the time. And it started somewhere. Um, here's another way of looking at it. Well, uh, I'll hold that for now. We push our limits. So we know that we know that the way we get stronger is by pushing our limits just, just all the way up to the edge. I can't bench press 350 pounds. But I know how I could by the end of next year. How would I do it? Small increments, right? You start with what you can handle, and then a week later, you add five pounds, and you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, to all of a sudden, 
350 pounds, you leave that in the dust, you can go much farther than that. It works the same way in life. When we make a habit of dealing with things as they come, we get better and better and better at it, to the point where everything that comes down the road, we can face because we made a habit of facing them and dealing with them instead of running from them. figure out where I'm so the question so the question then would be why don't we want to face the things that are in our paths and I think that's obvious it's because it's too painful it's because we're afraid it's because it's too vulnerable it's too big because it hurts and in that case you have a choice to make what are you going to do are you going to face it anyway or are you going to run from it and the incision is actually really important because every time you do it, whatever it is that you're doing with the things in your life that you don't want to face, whatever it is you're doing, the way you react to them is likely how you're going to react tomorrow to the same thing. Because those patterns are neurologically enforcing themselves in our minds and getting better and better and better at doing it, whether or not it's actually good for us. You can run from the things you don't want to face, the, the benefit of that is that you don't have to face them, obviously. The downside is that uh, you don't get any stronger, and you leave a part of yourself there that could have gotten better. Um, there's this idea in psychology that um, if something traumatic happens to you, you stay that age emotionally until you've, until you've uh, processed it. I'll give you an example of that. I heard a, heard a psychologist saying of the guy that he was working with that had a lot of horrible things happen to him when he was about five years old. And he was now like 40 and hadn't looked in the mirror in, I forget, 15 years, 20 years, something like that. Like this guy did, literally did not look in the mirror for years on end because he couldn't, he couldn't face himself. And he would have these nightmares and flashbacks of things that had happened to him. And he was always, in his dreams, he was always a little five-year-old kid again. And as he was working through the, uh, the counseling sessions with his therapist, he, he noticed something interesting was beginning to happen. He said as he was, he was still experiencing the flashbacks, but as he, as, he, um, as he progressed, he started getting older in his dreams. And eventually he actually caught up to where he was. And, but it all started when he was willing to actually look in the mirror. And it was the first time he looked in the mirror for years, and he cried when he saw his reflection because he didn't realize how old he'd become. Because in his mind, he was still a little five-year-old kid. And as he started facing the things that had happened to him and processing them, he started processing them as a 40-year-old instead of a five-year-old. But for all of those years of his life, he had never been able to move past that because he couldn't face it. And it's no wonder. Five-year-olds aren't meant to, to, to process uh, things that, that happen to them like that. Um, and I actually have a friend who has whose experiences are very similar. She's gone through a lot of trauma in her life, and she totally relates, related with the story that I just told you. Um, we don't get to move on when we refuse to process. So what are the benefits of facing the problem? Well, for one, I get to move on a more complete and stronger person. I know how to deal with it if it comes up again. I can deal with better, bigger issues, and I create a healthy pattern of facing obstacles and growing stronger through overcoming them. 
All of those things happen because if we make a habit out of dealing with the things that we don't like. So how does this relate to the story of Jacob? I'm going to read a very familiar part of his life for you, just in, in conclusion here. So Jacob is going back to meet Esau. Esau has, has sent word that uh, he's going to come and destroy him, essentially. And Jacob sends his wives across the brook. So they they're, they got to cross over this 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 uh, the brook Jabbok, I think it was called, um, to get to where Esau is to go on their journey. And Jacob sends all his servants, all his uh, flocks and herds. He sends Leah and her children. He sends Rachel and her children. He sends his concubines and their children over the brook. And he's left there alone. So everyone is between Jacob and Esau, essentially. Everyone in Jacob's camp is between him and Esau. And uh, Jacob is, is there on the other side of the, of the river that night. And he begins to wrestle with someone. And this is what the ESV says. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. So, looking back on the story now, we would say that, that Jacob was wrestling with God. Why did God ask Jacob his name? And it wasn't because Jacob, God did not know Jacob's name. Jacob means deceiver or supplanter. What did Jacob do every time he got against, got up into a situation he didn't like? He stole, he cheated, he lied, and then he ran. He did it to Esau. He goes to his uncle Laban, marries several of his daughters. Things fall out with Laban, and Jacob does the exact same thing. Waits until Laban's gone, and runs. Now Jacob is up against Esau. And I don't know why Jacob was by himself on the, you know, the other side of the creek that night. But based on past experiences, I would say it's likely that Jacob was putting himself in a position where he could run again if things went badly. And then the angel, or God in this case, asks Jacob. Jacob asks God to bless him. And God asked him, so who are you, Jacob? And Jacob says, I'm Jacob. But the question is deeper than that. Um, I think God is asking Jacob, Jacob, do you realize who you've become? And Jacob essentially says, yes, this is who I am. I am the deceiver. I'm the cheater. I'm the liar. I'm the one that runs. And then God blessed him by hurting his leg. And from that day on, Jacob walked away with a limp. But it was the biggest blessing he ever got in his life. You know why? Because God took away his ability to ever run again. But it couldn't happen until Jacob realized who he'd become. Running was Jacob's go-to method for dealing with situations he didn't like. And it's not just Jacob, it's all of us. Sometimes, in order for God to bless us, we have to realize or acknowledge who we are. And sometimes, God's blessing is taking away our crutch. 
forcing us to deal with our situation and to face them. Jacob lost his coping mechanism. And he had to learn how to face reality instead of running from it. He didn't do a real great job after this either. But he never ran again. What you do every day is important because it's shaping who you are. So it's worth attending to, and it's worth figuring out, and it's worth asking questions. All right. Thank you for putting up with my random there for a while. Very dismissed.